0: Hi, my name is Jared Barron, and I am the CEO of The Metals Company, and I'm joined today by Anthony O'Sullivan, who's our Chief Development Officer. Um, So The Metals Company are all about opening up a new supply of battery materials, in fact, and we're very focused on polymetallic nodules, and you can see I'm holding one in my hand. Um, They form in the deep ocean. They sit in the abyssal zone and they form by precipitating the metals that are in the solution in the seawater or in the sediment upon which they sit. And we're focused on an area just off the coast of Mexico, well, about 1,100 nautical miles off the coast of Mexico, known as the clarion clipperton zone, or CCZ, uh, where these nodules form in great abundance with very high grades of nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese. And in fact, if you put the copper, cobalt, and manganese into nickel equivalents, it's well over 3%. So very high grade. And on just two of our license areas, we've identified about 1.6 billion tonnes of polymetallic nodules. And and uh, yeah, we're excited to share more of the story with you today. Sure. Thank you very much for that that introduction. Um, deep
1: sea mining, um, polymetallic nodules. Um, I mean, it's. <laughs> I, I interview quite a lot of companies, and this is a, uh, this is a new venture for me. I, I, um, I, I did, years ago, meet the, the, the offshore diamond um, <clears throat> producers, but um, Anthony, um, why don't you jump on and give us a, a, a brief introduction to your background and how you came to uh, be the development and technical officer for an, uh, a deep sea mining company?
2: Yeah, thanks, Merlin. Um, I'm a geologist by by training. I have more than 30 years experience in the minerals industry. Uh, About 30, about about 15 years of that with BHP, I was in their exploration leadership team, the global exploration leadership team, and responsible for their iron ore, coal, bauxite, and base metal exploration programs. Um, when, when I left BHP, I joined a company called Nautilus, which pioneered a lot of subsea development in, in PNG, um, undertook a number of world firsts and started the development of the Solara One um, deposit. I joined um, the Deep Green, now, the, the metals company, in 2017 and have been responsible for all elements of the, the project development uh, from resource evaluation, um, environmental baseline, data collection, uh, permitting, um, the offshore engineering and our, our process development. Wonderful, Thanks, you. My goodness, there's so much to unpack there.
1: Um, but um, before we get onto the the permitting and the environmental side of things, can you just talk me through the how it works? Um, so that the, the modules are at the sea floor. First of all, about the resource estimation. How do you know about the 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 the, the, the grade of these? Um, samples. How do you get a kind of representative grade? How do you do a resource estimate on that?
2: Well, if we if we go to I think around about um, slide eight, Jared, uh, or slide seven that just says some of the the resource summary, um, you can yeah. show where the resource is. And you this has been uh,
1: performed by taking samples, kind of at specific uh, frequency across a, a nodule field.
2: Yeah, and so, so, Jared, if we just go to the previous slide, I think that's the useful one that actually just shows you what the seafloor looks like. That, that's a, this is a video of a, a transect taken by an underwater autonomous vehicle, which you'll, you'll see, see a, um, a, a picture of a bit later. Just taking ph- photography of the, the seafloor, uh, all the little black things you can see there, are nodules, the white bits are just some some sand volcanoes pushed up by by worms. And you can see that there's a continuous pavement of um, these nodules, which have an average grade of 1.3% Nickel, 1.1% Copper, 0.2% Cobalt and um, 29 and a bit, um, 29.5% Manganese. Um, The way we evaluate the resource, and it has very high confidence, um, because you can actually see it, it's essentially a two D re- resource. Jared, if you go to the, the picture, a couple about th- two or three down, that shows the the AUV and the, the launcher. Yeah, this one. So this is this is how how we evaluate the the resource. We're using these assets. Uh, the boat in the in the um, top left corner is is the Mersk launcher, a, a vessel that we use to support or we did use to support all our Our offshore um, work Um, but basically the things that we need to know to define the resource are we need to know the abundance of the nodules on the seafloor and we need to know the metal contents of the of the nodules on the seafloor and with those two with those two two pieces of knowledge we can put the resource together
1: and um by abundance is there a depth component to this is this one layer across is is it one nodule thick and
2: or are, are these a like, um, kind of accumulate? They're, they're largely all at the surface, and particularly in the Nori D area where we have focused, the, the nodules are there at the surface, and they know what you see is what you get. Um, so the way we can work out the, the abundance is by deploying um, box cores, which you can see two examples of on the top right there. Um, it's basically a device that lowers down on a, on a wire to the seafloor, uh, punch it into the seafloor, and when you pick it up, a, a shovel comes in underneath, a, a lid goes on the top. So it's like cutting a piece of turf from the, the, the seafloor. We bring that up to the surface. We, we know the area of the box core, and in, in this case, it's 0.75 metres squared. Uh, we weigh the nodules, so we know the, the mass of nodules per per unit area, um, and then we, just sub, we take a sample of the nodules and, and assay them uh, for the key metals. One okay. of the... Su- that one of the remarkable things about this resource is its consistency. Um, When you look at the statistics for the chemistry of the nodules, um, the range on the variograms is of the order of 20 kilometres. So if you take a sample of the order of 7 to 10 kilometres from each other, you get an accurate or a reasonable estimate of the chemistry of the nodules. The range on the variogram for abundance, a little bit more variable, but that's about 10 kilometres. So sampling mm-hmm. that on a three-kilometre spacing gets you to to measured um, resource status. So the, the approach we use is we've been box scoring, depending upon the variance, at sort of 10 to 7-kilometre spacing, and that provides the estimate of the, the chemistry. And then using the AUV, which you can see the, the, that orange torpedo-shaped body, mm-hmm. um, that's a remote, basically a subsea drone. Uh, that we you can provide a mission to. It has a duration of um, the, the, the current ones up to about 48 hours. Uh, you give it a mission and it goes down with a package of sensors, uh, including uh, bathymeter, multi-beam bathymeter, which gives very accurate topography or bath- bathymetry, uh, a side-scan sonar, which maps the texture and roughness and, and, and very surface hardness of the, of the, the nodule field a sub-bottom profiler, which is a sort of a, a low-energy seismic device which can penetrate down to about 100 metres, so it provides the, the, the structure underneath, and then importantly a camera. And it, you can see that, that picture on the, the right, that's a camera taken from the AUV, and, and that, that image I showed before was a, was a mosaic taken from the AUV. And so you can demonstrate um, continuity between the, the box cores because you have the samples, and then we can, can fly the AUV, the seven kilometres um, between them. We can look at every photograph and we can, have it, without any doubt, show that the, the resource is completely continuous.
1: How do you, uh, just curiosity, is, is there enough light underwater to use a camera?
2: No, the, the yeah. AUV has a strobe on it. So, so down at that depth, um, it's, it's um, completely dark. Yeah. It's uh, about yeah. two degrees um, Celsius, 100 bar pressure. Um, it's a it's a you know, relatively you know, difficult environment to operate in.
1: I saw the um, <clears throat> on the on the video showing that the 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 AUV was at one point two or one point one meters above the the yes. seafloor, so so it
2: just actually just skims yeah. the bottom. Yeah, amazing. That, at, at that um, at that altitude, that was an ROV that took those images. So a similar a similar device, but in that case, tethered. To the the vehicle so so more more um, user control that that one we can fly at about a meter height the AUVs we we sort of limit to about three meters height um, just okay. just just because they're autonomous and they they have to maintain their own you know, uh, obstacle avoidance. Um, thank
1: you. And really interesting about the the, the similar the, the chemistry similarity across the, the 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 sea floor. I mean, you're really in the in the in the realm of um you know lyle and hutton and the principle of uniformitarianism and, and kind of um, the yeah. seabed chemistry and uh all of that um <clears throat> but um okay so the resource is there it's it's one nodule thick but uh, extremely extensive so j- j- just for my education um the proposed mining method will be to go across with a kind of a, a hoover which is tethered to um ship above is that correct and then that's correct yes um and then that will be a con- continuous process loading up the ship and I'm, I'm completely new to this i mean so so stop yeah. me if i'm wrong but will it be a, will it be a
2: batch process or will you be able to continually uh, offload off that ship uh, it'll be a continuous um process and i guess jared if you go to about slide 10 I think that might be a useful place to start just sort of around some of the technology and technology development. Uh, actually, I think the sequence that you've got, it might be the one before that. Yeah, this one. So, so a lot of, lot of people say, okay, well, if the, the resource is there, how do you get it up, which is the, the question that you asked. And one, one of the key things that the, the, in, in this space is that it's not new, um, this was actually first done way back in the 1970s. There were four consortia of major mining, industrial steel companies that that started exploring and then looking to develop um, the the resource of the CCZ. Uh, there were a number of tests um, by Kennecourt, Ken you know, the the the, the Kennecott consortia, and also one led by Lockheed Martin that in the 70s resulted in them um, bringing about 15. Hundred tons of nodules to the surface, um, demonstrating that a remote vehicle using 1970s technology could could roam the seafloor, um, collect the nodules and bring them to surface. And then those various groups as well also then process them into to metals, um, largely cathodes. So, so the technology was demonstrated um, back in the, the 70s. We've subsequently had the the advantage of 50 years of oil and gas offshore technology development where a whole series of technologies have been improved and, and indeed some of the core technologies like position keeping and location and heave compensation were actually invented by these guys out in the, the 70s, which have the subsequently been, been very much honed into to completely commercial industrial technology. So, so pumps, umbilicals, control systems, all of the elements that that we need to, to put a vehicle on the seafloor to, to pump the water and, and then bring it to the surface um, has been honed. And so with what we're doing at the moment, it's not so much any core technology development. It's all about assembling existing technologies to, to do this purpose. Yeah.
1: Sort of just a phrase used in there, heave compensation. is that the motion of the 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 boat on a on a varying current
2: or um wave, or is that yeah, something that, else? yeah that that's a so you no know, a vessel has a, a number of different movements. It has you no know, pitch, pitch yaw, and your and, and, and heave and, and you can control the the sort of pitch, um, your roll um by putting stuff in the middle of the boat. But heave is where the boat actually goes up and down because of the swell. And so what, what, the, what that is, is, and it's done in various different, different ways, but, but basically a, a mechanism whereby um, whatever you're putting into the water has a controlled um, movement so that it basically takes out the, the impact of the heave of the vessel. And it, it's done a, done a number of ways. Um, the, the system that we're using for deployment of the collector um, that that's using it in the launch and recovery system. There, there's a there's a beam there that'll will go up and down to to remove the the heat motion in the the port pool. Often it's it's done on large um, air driven cylinders, which which move the whole derrick up and down um, to to make sure that the yeah. motion of the of the boat um, is yeah. removed when you you put the material on the seafloor and also when you put it through the splash zone.
1: And um,
2: <clears throat> so. Essentially, it's like a kind of a, um,
1: a shock absorber, really, on the on on on, on the on the boat. Um,
2: Essentially, th- that was um, there. We go. There's the picture. Yeah. So, um, so this is the system that we've developed with our partners, all Allseas. Um, one of the advantages that we have in the current environment is, as we highlighted, there's been fifty years of technology development by an offshore oil and gas industry which now is currently at a point in its development where it needs to pivot away from its core business, which doesn't have a great future to it, to other uses. And a lot of the contractors in this space who are used to working with the, the large oil majors and, and are themselves very large companies like like Allseas, Transocean, Halliburton, are all looking for where are they going to deploy the, these billions of dollars of assets um, that they've de- developed and the capability and balance sheets that they have now with, with very strong oil prices, which are good, but they, they need to pivot into other things. Offshore wind is one, and they're very interested in de- developing the technology um, to pivot into this space, which they see as a natural energy hedge, um, battery metals for for the industries that they've come out of. So so we entered into a, an agreement with all um some, some three years ago now, uh, where they would... Um, uh, develop a test collection system, and then on the success of that, enter into a contract mining um, contract with us. So that vessel that you saw, it's a converted um, Samsung 10,000 drill ship uh, that they they acquired for, you no know, for um, at, at, at a good price, significantly less than the $700 million um, price tag it had on construction, something less than, less than 50. Um, they then... Um, built the collector vehicle which you saw that was the yellow yellow box, um, a umbilical which connects that to the surface and provides the power control systems and, and telemetry. And then a, a riser which is basically a steel pipe with a, a jumper, which is a which is a, you know, a high-tech rubber hose that connects the the vehicle to the riser and and um, makes sure that the motions of, of both are are separated from one another. Um, the, the collector drives uh, along the, the seafloor. Uh, it uses um, water jets that are uh, driven parallel to the seafloor, so not into the seafloor but parallel to, to minimise the, the uh, amount of sediment that's entrained. And then through a process called the Coanda process, which is a little, little, works in a similar way to an aeroplane wing, you, you force a fluid to go over a curved surface, which then creates lift and that lifts the nodules into a, an adductor on the, on the head. Uh, that Then you, you provide additional water and then pump it into the, into the collector. Within the collector, there's a separator, so an area where there's a hopper that slows down the speed of the nodules. Uh, the entrained sediment is, dis- is discharged behind the, the, the vehicle, and then the nodules pumped up to a, a, um, the riser. The riser then uses a system called airlift. So basically injecting air about two kilometers down into the pipe um, to decrease the density of the material in the pipe, and then essentially displacive forces from from around force the the nodules and the slurry to the surface. Um, The nodules are separated from water, just using simple screening on on the vessel and and, um, then discharged into the hold. And the return water is discharged at a depth um, normally um, a bit deeper than 1,200 meters depth. Um,
1: Sorry, just uh, I'm 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 learning as you speak. You know, this is lots of information to take in. You you talk about a slurry in the riser, um, but you also talk about sediment reduction. So, is the slurry the nodules in the water, or is there a um, is there
2: so, so no. basically, it's the well, There is. The, it's just the sediment from the seafloor. We, we don't we don't introduce any muds or any chemicals or any additives to the to the process. But when
1: you when you collect, you talked about this the collector then the selector. So you're reducing the amount of sediment. Do you have a it's kind of a, a kind of a mud weight? I know you said you're not introducing mud, but is is there a kind of a preferred slurry density that you use to transport the the the, the nodules in?
2: No, no, we, we, the, the whole aim is to get A and train as little mud as possible and then deposit yeah. the mud as rapidly as possible directly behind the, the machine for engineering purposes and also for environmental purposes. We, we want to pick up the, the materials that we don't bring to surface. We want to put it down as quickly as we can behind the, the vehicle. We've done a lot of work looking at the dynamics of the discharge plumes, both at the seafloor and in, in the mid water and yep. um, a, a lot of work that we've done with a group called um, D- um, D- DHI or the D- Danish Hydraulics Institute, one of the, the leaders in modeling um, hydrodynamic processes and plumes for the, for the dredge industry, shows that, that the plumes on the subsea settles very rapidly because while the, the, the individual sediment particles are very fine, they're, they're 15 to 20 microns on, on average. Um, because they're in seawater and they're largely negatively charged clays, it flocculates very quickly. and we end up with flocks of the order of a millimeter in size uh, within minutes to hours of it, of it discharging out at the, the back of the machine. So, so the settling velocities on those are hundreds of meters a day. and the, the average height that that plume gets to is about five meters. So, so you can do the math in your head very quickly that that settles out very rapidly in the tracks behind the collector. Interesting. And oh, it
1: brings me down to kind of seawater chemistry and benthic behaviour and stuff, but that's a different conversation we yeah. can talk about another time. Um, <clears throat> um, so essentially the it's it's an air displacement lift. So it's what's going up is primarily the nodules and nodules
2: water.
1: nodules, water, and air. Uh, so it's a nodules, nod, nodules, water, and air. Okay. And um, let's say it's 3% nickel. Nickel's currently $23,000 a ton. So what are you talking about? Kind of $900 rock? Yeah, thereabouts, $800 eight to 900 depending on how you do, how
2: yeah, you do yeah. the
1: numbers. And, you know, that's a kind of a, a historic high. So um, one nodule thick. Um, what's how many meters do you need for a ton? Uh, how many meters do you, do you need for a ton or, or, production? Or, or, or maybe you don't think about it like that you know so, so let me ask you a question another way. How do you, how do you um, work out what your cost going to be?
2: Okay so so I, I guess there's the, the production is based on traversing along at 0.5 meters um, per, per second. Um, a production system, uh, crawler will the one that we're testing at the moment is six meters wide. will be a twelve meter wide um, vehicle. Um, from that, we're looking at production rates of the order of three thousand ton a day, um, tra- traversing the, the seafloor. Our costs uh, are basically the 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 capital on on the vessel, fuel and people and spare parts when we're when we're offshore, um, and then transport costs to bring it. Onshore, um, and then then um, onshore, it's um, the, the processing costs. About thirty um, percent of the costs uh, are offshore costs, and uh, know, sort of depending upon how how they cut, sixty uh, percent or thereabouts are are um, uh, processing costs, and about ten percent transport. Okay, and it's three thousand tons per day,
1: half a, half a meter per second. That's quite quick.
2: Yeah, it's, it's about the speed that a dozer dozer goes when it's when it's um up and tracking. running. Yeah, when, when it, you know, if it's just just walking walking a dozer along the track. So if you think about and that, it's a it's a it's a fast walk.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and the 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 seabed topography is sufficiently flat for that to be um,
2: achievable on a six meter wide beam. Yeah. So, so the. The, the seafloor is very flat over wide areas. We're, we're on a, an, a part of the ocean called the Abyssal Plains and um, the Claring-Clipperton zone in the east is at about 4,000 metres in depth and 4,000 4, kilometres away in the, in the west is at five thousand metres, so so you can see that that average okay. slope on that is is very flat. There is, there is some structure in there, some faulting and that sort of thing, but the the faults are largely spaced at about ten kilometres apart. So you end up with areas that are very flat, with with the odd odd fault scarp with with some some um, some volcanic exposures around those lifted grabens, but then very gentle s- slopes um, that. Um, that we've done a lot of work on, on mapping out and we've estimated from the bathymetry that we've done that 93% of the Nori D area has slopes less than six degrees. And that's what we've used to constrain our resource estimate.
1: Okay, and you've, you've mapped them out so you can, you can plan your routes accordingly in, 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 in blocks and when you've got to change it. So So if, are you collecting 3,000 tonnes per day onto a single ship and then, That's then, then what happens when you reach capacity
2: of that ship? So, so as we're collecting, um, the, um, there's a second vessel that will be sitting along behind uh, with connected by floating hoses uh, to, the, to the main vessel, which um, takes the, the nodules and gets them transferred. Um, that vessel then um, goes off and takes it to, to port where we can then transship them to, to wherever we need to take them. Um, the, the vessel itself, the collector vessel, the, has, has storage on it so it can keep collecting uh, when you're connecting and disconnecting the, the transport vessels, so, so to provide for a continuous process. Okay, there we go.
1: There's the, there's the continuous process. Um, so operating area um, 1,200 um, or 1,100 nautical miles offshore west of Mexico, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And where's your process plant going to be? I, did, I, did I read
2: India? Or is yes. that? Yeah, we've just signed a, an agreement with a group called Epsilon Carbon, which is a company related to the Jindal Steel um, Group, which is one of the biggest um, steel manufacturers in, in India. Uh, they currently make um, anodes for batteries, and they're very keen in getting into the cathode business. We've spent many years um, with Hatch and a number of, of groups developing a processing flow sheet. And indeed, it rests very heavily on work that was done in the 1970s by INCO, who, who developed a pyrometallurgical, hydrometallurgical refining flow sheet to process nodules. And so we, we took all of that work, um, took it through sort of modern METSIM uh, modelling, uh, developed the flow sheet, which is it's relatively um, conventional. Uh, Rotary kiln, electric arc furnace, very similar to a lot of the operations in Indonesia uh, with converting, which has been done before um, and is being increasingly looked at in in Indonesia uh, to produce a mat. And then uh, very, very traditional mat refining using sulfuric acid leach to produce copper cathode, uh, nickel and, and cobalt sulfate powders. So all of this, all of the unit operations that we're using have been done before on very similar materials. But nodules have an advantage over nickel laterites in that they have significantly higher grade, Um, but also importantly, um, rather than producing a lot lot of slag, uh, silicate slag, which the nickel laterite operators do, we produce a manganese silicate product. So out of the, once the the kilns and the furnace, the, the furnace melts the material, it produces two phases. One phase is a silicate liquid, which represents about 93% of the mass flow of, of the system, and then also an iron alloy, which contains the nickel, copper, and cobalt in it. That iron alloy, uh, we then sulfidize in a converter um, by adding sulphur into the toyers and the, the base of the, the converter and, and then basically convert, blow oxygen in it to, to, uh, with, a, with a silicate slag to, to remove the iron. And we end up with a mat that goes, you know, about forty percent um, nickel, about forty percent copper, and a bit of cobalt in it. So a very, very high, high grade mat. And, and that mat, um, so that mat then goes to a smelter. That 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 mat just then goes to a refinery. So so that's where we where we would then um, base that that process of dissolving it in a sulfuric acid leach, and then um, basically stepwise um, purification and removal of of, of copper. Uh, then nickel and then cobalt to, to produce um, the copper cathode, nickel and cobalt sulfates, and then also interestingly finally an ammonium sulfate fertilizer grade material. So so that there's no there's no solid waste from anywhere in the process. The manganese silicate, which grades forty two percent manganese, is semi reduced. So so because of the the Processing that we've done, the manganese is in as a manganese silicate, a, a synthetic olivine, uh, which, which basically has MN as a, as a two plus valence state. Uh, that material competes with manganese ores to make silico manganese alloys and has a very attractive um, manganese to iron ratio and also a very attractive manganese to phosphorus ratio and has somewhere between seven and 17 percent uh, value in use bonus for our, for our customer over using a standard um, blend of, of manganese ores that are in the marketplace at the moment. So, so we see that that's going to be a premium product to go into producing manganese alloys and it indeed will um, help alleviate some of the carbon um, carbon emissions of that industry, which are very, very high. We, we've been working with a group called Sintef in Norway to, to do that, that test work on the, on the manganese silicates that we, we generated from a pilot test work. So, so this last, in 2020, just before COVID hit, we collected a 70 tonne bulk sample from the, the Clarin Clipperton zone, and we completed a series of um, pilot tests in um, the, using FLS in Pennsylvania in the US to do the, the calcining and then XPS in Sudbury uh, to do the, the smelting and converting test work for us. And, and we demonstrated that we could produce the mat on spec at pretty much as expected, and similarly the manganese silicate material. And Sintef have been working on those, those samples of the manganese silicate to, to um, prove, A, that it's a it's a very interesting product or interesting feedstock for the manganese industry, and then look at, What value and use it is to our customers to use that material.
1: Thank you. That's a a whole lot of information, a massive data dump to my poor brain. Um, But I'm so the the uh, are you you assuming that the the mat or that the 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 the, the rotary kiln and all the converting processes is likely going to take place in India?
2: We have an agreement with Epsilon Carbon. Where they will develop a for what we call Project Zero, which is our initial small-scale commencement project of 1.3 million tons um, per annum of wet nodules. They'll 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 build a a plant capable of processing um, that that material, and indeed we're going through the the various study phases with them now. We we provided them all of our our. um, flow sheet development work and access to to all of the information they're putting the studies together now to to and identifying the sites. that they've found found a site and we're we're reviewing that um to basically build that plant to have it ready for late 2024 when we're targeting production and uh am i right in thinking that's the
1: is is that the plant that's going to cost 111 110 million dollars is that the I've seen some figures that you've, you had the cost of that being reduced from 163 million down to 110. Is, is that the bit that you're talking about?
2: No, that's for the offshore system. So, so we have, okay, a, that's the offshore system. So sorry. So we have an agreement with, um, with all seas where um, they, they, they'll develop the, the vessels and systems for project zero. So once we've finished the collector test, that vessel, the hidden gem is what we'll use to commence production with. So, so the, the lion's share of the material that we need or, or the offshore kit that we need to get going with already exists. So, so we're in a very different situation to many sort of projects that when you do a test, you pick you, yeah. you, you do the test work, you throw, throw all the equipment away that you did the test work and then you build the real stuff. Here, you know, by virtue of being able to use existing, um, existing assets, we can retool the, the hidden gem. And and what we need to do is we, we need to rebuild the collector to make it bigger. We do need to replace the, the riser because it needs to be a, a a larger, larger pipe to accommodate the, the, the larger production. Uh, but then a lot of the other systems that we have on the vessel already, we just need to upgrade. And so the estimate okay. to, to do that work is, is, a, is 110 um, million US. Um, and the agreement we have with all C's is that, that we need to provide half of that capital up upfront, um, and then that they will they will um, essentially bankroll half of it, and we pay pay. You no, know, we we recover that from the production when we get going.
1: And I, you, your presentation shows that you've got sixty nine million dollars in um, in cash. Is is the plan to allocate fifty five of that to the the retooling and the kind of the the, the, the of the hidden gem? so that you can then start production or are you?
0: Yeah. So we, um, when we raised a bit less money than we anticipated, we, uh, we went back to our partners and said, look, um, you know, we'd like you to share some of the get started cost." And so we reached an agreement with all C's where they would pay for half of the, um, conversion costs, the capital, and we would pay the other half and we would then, um, repay them the half that they had paid uh, through a production uh, levy. On that point, going forward, we anticipate that there will be asset owners who will make available their production assets and they will cover all of those costs. That's our, that's our hope in the future and certainly consistent with conversations that we're having. Uh, but this is the first one, so it's only reasonable that you know we we bear a larger portion of that risk. Uh, on the onshore side, we always knew that there would be parties who wanted to get into this industry, and by either converting some of those assets, like Tony referred to earlier, or in this case, uh, finding a company who wants to be in the battery cathode space. And of course, we know that India has a, a desperate need for all of these materials just to support their local economy. And so, you know, we haven't announced the final terms of the uh, Indian economics uh, yet, but we will do um, by the end of the year, we, we hope. Um, but the option there is that we found a partner who can fund all of that capex. And, um, and so that was really just a way of showing the market that, hey, we can keep this very capital light because there is sufficient operating margin to be able to share it with those capital providers. Thank you. Um, you've talked about getting into production in late
1: 2024. Um, what are the critical path items in, in doing that? Is there more um, proving of, of uh, pilot scale test work? I, mean, I saw that you're doing the rise of de- um, deployment test uh, in April and May. Um, you know, Where are you in your kind of understanding of economic thresholds and technical technological technological or technical thresholds that will give you confidence on the, on the production, or is it just a case of ramping up?
2: So, so as we said, the technology development started in the 70s. Uh, we then improved on that. We've then subsequently done a, a whole series of component tests um, on the offshore system so that, that the collector was fi- finalised um, construction in January, February this year. Then a series of wet tests initially in the the harbour in Rotterdam, uh, then in the North Sea, and, and then at depth. So, or, or and doing all of the operations that we need to operate the, the collector system, at the speed at which it'll go, um, turning, um, connecting that the, the the jumper, and some there there are some some operations subsea that that, that are, are a bit challenging, and they they demonstrated they could do them all. The hidden gem now is. Um, Heading towards the the site, uh, it'll mobilise in, in a port um, on the west coast of the of, of the Americas, and then head out to the site with a view to start the what we're calling the collector test in um, mid August this year. Um, from that, it'll it'll do a direct trial of driving the ve- vehicle on the seafloor, connecting nodules, um, bringing them to the surface, um, doing all of the unit operations offshore, apart from vessel to vessel transfer, because uh, that was seen to not, not be a, a critical element at, at this stage. So, so that test has two purposes, one to demonstrate the technical and um, economic capability of the system, but also to provide us an opportunity to observe the environmental impacts of, of that work. Uh, there's a second vessel that will be heading out before, during and after the, the collected test. So it'll do pre-test um, survey, Uh, So survey exactly where we're going to, in in a lot of detail, uh, collect um, the third part of our environmental baseline work, which we've been undertaking now for quite a number of years. Um, So for each understanding the spatial and temporal variation of the the environmental baseline there, uh, we'll then undertake the collection and during the collection monitor um, the impacts of the the plume and and the other other, um, impacts of the environment. And then at the end of the collector test, once the, the vehicle is removed and the hidden gem headed back to, to, to port, uh, it'll undertake a series of surveys looking at where the sediment um, plume went, um, looking at what what impact it had on the, the biology of the areas that it, that it drove over and sort of how many nodules were, were left behind, what our recoveries were, um, and what's what the depth of penetration of the vehicle into the seafloor. So so a, a very thorough study which will give us a good understanding of the capability of the system and, and what the impact it has on the environment.
1: Thank you. That's really comprehensive and very clear. Um <clears throat> when will the reports be out for that? You know, when when will the um have the kind of the the the
2: big reveal of what the environmental impact is going to be? So so we we have a plan to lodge a application for a production permit or production contract with the International Seabed Authority in the second half of next year. So that, that will involve putting together what they call a, a mining production plan, so, so basically the, the mine plan, the equipment um, uh, a financing plan, which the two of those documents together are essentially a pre-feasibility study, which will lodge the, the ISA and an environmental impact statement, as well as an environmental monitoring and management plan for for the operation going forward, so that all of that work will be pulled together into those key key documents and lodged with the ISA as part of our our application um, in in the end of twenty twenty
1: three. Thank you very much. That's 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 the kind of the, the, the Gerard is is that the kind of the big um, target that you're working to, towards.
0: It is, Merlin, yeah. We, look, it's a it's a super exciting, you know, 15 months ahead of us because we we know a lot about the environment, of course, in which we've been operating. Um, we know that the consortia back in the 70s and 80s uh, produced an enormous amount of data. NOAA, the US agency, of course, have carried out a full environmental impact study which they reported to the Senate in the early 90s. And, and we, of course, have done a lot of our own study and other contractors, uh, including the Belgians and their, and their subsidiary GSR uh, carried out their pilot collector last year. And so we've benefited by being able to review this material and observe it. And so look, we're super excited because we've always believed that this resource offers real benefits from a environment and societal perspective. And so obviously getting more tangible uh, conclusions is gonna really help us um, with this important messaging. So yeah, obviously the collector test is important. We're we're fortunate to have an amazingly talented partner in all seas, they've been operating, you know in difficult environments in the deep ocean for 35 years. And, you know, we've assembled some years ago a world-class leading science team from many different organizations, including the Natural History Museum and National Oceanography Centre and University of Hawaii, and so, and of course, we we have lots of external expertise coming together to help us on this monitoring campaign. So it's a very busy time, but it's a super exciting time as well. And uh, yeah, look forward to reporting it all. Well, thank you. I
1: mean, I, it's been a. Um, fascinating for me. Uh, 50 minutes uh, learning about the company um, and the projects. Anthony, I really appreciate the the, the technical insights you provided, um, and Jared, the oversight and, the, and and just the whole thing. Thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to the the news flow as you go ahead, mm. um, with eyes on that that kind of 18 month horizon. I, I think that's the the, the the crucial element.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Miller Thanks, Miller Bye. Bye.